The High Power Hangout is a podcast that promotes and supports firearms, sports, and firearm safety. I do not support crime, negligence, illegal actions, or misuse of firearms. Always treat every firearm as if it was loaded, point them in a safe direction, and never put your finger on the trigger until you intend to safely fire and always be aware of what's behind your target. Discussions on this podcast, write-ins, or guest appearances are not responsible for your actions or inactions as a result of content covered in the show. Do not use reloading data from the show without working up from a considerably more conservative charge and solely working up until a safe load can be obtained. Sierra sells shiny seconds to Sam. Sierra sells shiny seconds to Sam. Good morning or afternoon or whatever it is where you're listening today. Welcome back to the High Power Hangout. I'm JP, and today is Friday, September 16th, 2022. The days are getting shorter, the temperatures are starting to drop, and everyone is getting their fix on pumpkin spice whatevers. Pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkin spice mochas, I even heard that there's a pumpkin spiced varget hitting the shelves in the near future. While I love matches that are held in the fall, it's a punch-in-the-face reminder that the season is starting to wrap up. While it'll mean less shooting and testing and practicing and everything we love, it'll mean that I still get to use up some more content that I have planned that doesn't involve going to the range. I'm excited about that. While the frequency of episodes will be lower, the content will still have that goofy goodness that you're hopefully looking for. I just came back from 10 days off work, which was a desperately needed vacation. I was able to sneak away and finally find an agreeable load for Vitalvorian 140. And for an 80-round match of my favorite league, and sadly had to miss the leg match back in my home state of Nebraska due to some nasty weather in the morning and an 8-hour drive planned after the match. I feel kind of icky about not giving it a chance, but it was probably the right call. On NBC's The Office, Michael Scott once said, You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky. So for that match, I scored a 0. 0 points, 0 X's, but that's just the way it goes sometimes, and it probably worked out for the better. I was able to score an appointment at my local shop and finally, finally, finally get my Elysio UMRS that I've been waiting for 353 days, 23 hours, and 8 minutes, or 11.65 months, or 0.97 years. Not that anybody here is counting. Everybody told me it's worth the wait, and after unboxing it, I can see why. You'll probably hear a lot about it in the future, and as I told one of our excellent local match shooters, I'm looking forward to sucking with this new rifle and chiseling away at a new challenge. Actually, as a funny side note, the FFL brought my box in and thought it was a 50 Barrett. He couldn't believe the weight of the box. In reality, the box had the 6BR rifle and a 308 barrel, and that was it. The exact shipping weight was 23 pounds, which is the equivalent of 23 cans of Heinz baked beans, 46 Big Macs, the amount of pizza the average American eats in one year, or what everybody was thinking this whole time, 23 guinea pigs. Today's schedule is a blend of a quick results rundown from my one, not two, matches, some technique talk by request, a broad reloading talk in the low lounge, and a quick word from our sponsors. 5, 4, 3, 2. Today's results rundown will be fairly quick. I hadn't shot an 80-rounder in a while, so I was a little nervous that I might have lost a little stamina in offhand, but it turns out that wasn't quite the case. Offhand seems something short of just a biblical miracle. After my second or third shot, things really settled down in the movement department. I haven't seen a hold like this in a while, and my trigger finger had no stage fright or delay. My hold started in the 12 o'clock 9 ring, and it just kind of slowly crept down into the 10 ring. It had less left-to-right bouncing than I'm used to, and it was very slow to creep down into the 10 ring. I'm not sure where that hold came from, but I will forever measure my holds against that one that day. I had a 199 with 11x on that string. Sitting had a considerable bounce, but I was able to keep it together, 200 with 10x. 
I had some left and right issues not associated with the wind at the 300 yard line, which puzzled me and I have no answers for it, finishing off with a 198 and 7. Slow prone was clean, but it was a damn struggle keeping things on call. I'm not sure exactly what was going on, and maybe it was the same thing that showed up at rapid prone, but if I had to estimate, I'd say 60% of my shots were not on call. 60%. It was another one of those classic, let me just keep it pointed in the middle, and maybe the shot will be in the 10 ring. 200 with 9 and slow prone, finishing with a 797 and 37Xs. I'm happy about the score, but I'm not happy about how the match ended up getting there. I'll have to watch this going into the state short course championship, which is coming up tomorrow. Okay, before we get too far into today's technique talk, I want to explain that I'm not a nutritionalist, a doctor, or a specialist in food or hydration. However, I do drink water, often, and I've struggled with a weak gut since I was a kid. I've had 30 <coughs> years to figure this out, and I found things that are helpful and things that are generally setbacks. Now, I work in an environment that is extremely dry, dehydrating me over long periods of time, and hydration is crucial to ensure that our brains are operating at the level that allows us for quick and correct decision making, as well as execution of years of perfected skills. In fact, physiology is so important to my job that physiology was a mandatory six-month course in college taught by a specialized doctor in my field. Today's technique talk is about both hydration and nutrition during, before, and after the match. This segment was already partially written, but thanks to a listener's write-in, a few really important additions have been made to the segment. Let's get right into it and start with the easy segment, hydration. It's at the end of the season now where, unless you're in the South or in a real big heat wave, you're not overly concerned about staying hydrated to stay alive on the range. I used to joke to a few folks that the more you drink, the more you'll have to pee. If you don't drink, you don't pee. Problem solved. I had to stop saying that because one of our shooters stopped to think about that one just a little too long. Sorry, guy. Hydration really hit home for me at the end of a match in Van Meter, Iowa. I had just finished my 600-yard string and things were going wonky per usual, but one thing that wasn't helping was a pulse so strong I could see it in my scope. Adjustments in the sling couldn't tame this demon. I could feel it in my cheeks, my hips, and my hands. It was one of those, well, I'm already in position, the clock is ticking, not much I can really do here, except just try to fight through it. After my abominable string... I brought it up with my scorekeeper, who is a very accomplished shooter. He said, Dude, you need to drink more water throughout the match. I didn't see you drinking enough. It'll keep your pulse down. Boy, he was right. That was enough right there for me to completely change my outlook on water and how it relates to the physiology of shooting. Regarding our bodies, hydration is absolutely the number one concern that we should have. Not only when weather is hot, but also when it's not so hot. Hydration affects, affects or effects, effects, who cares? It affects our ability to do so many things that we need to be successful on the range. Our brain consists mostly of water. We literally have water melons. When we starve our brain of water, we start unknowingly shedding functions of the brain that are important. Functions like decision making, perceived energy levels, reaction time, patience, and so on. The brain has a multitude of processes and tasks that need to be prioritized in order for it to maintain homeostasis and, in essence, keep your body running. 
Unfortunately, very few of the key factors we need in shooting are at the top of the brain's list. For example, I would prioritize fine motor skills to work the trigger, eagle vision to see that little tiny black dot against the black background through all that mirage, a low heart rate to keep motion to a minimum, and lightning quick reaction time to allow the trigger to break within a tenth of a second, as very high for us as shooters, and unfortunately very low for the brain when trying to stay alive when it doesn't have the water it needs to keep cool and alive. I think we'd all agree with our brains there. I mean, look who's talking here. My brain. In periods of being dehydrated, ranging from light dehydration to extreme dehydration, our brain starts dropping the ability to hold up the performance of some of these skills that we need in order to focus on surviving. Unfortunately, we don't have the ability to choose which activities are shed first or second. In my industry, we call it load shedding, dropping unnecessary tasks and items in order to send energy elsewhere, usually in electrical processes. So let's be honest, if we could choose which brain task to turn off in order to focus on another, we'd be in a lot of trouble especially since we suck at prioritizing. Any procrastinators in here? Yeah, I'm right there with you. So what's the point I'm trying to make here? Well, stay hydrated, drink water, drink it often. In fact, when you're in competition on a hot day, drink water 50% more than you think you need. There's various levels of hydration you could be at, but the way I look at it is that you are either ahead of the game or you're behind the game. Being ahead of the game means you have a lot of water in the buffalo tank for a bunch of thirsty people. Being behind means that you're constantly refilling an empty water buffalo tank with 50 people waiting in line. You'll struggle to keep up. On hot days, I'll typically run through about 64 ounces of water every 90 minutes. That's a lot of water. In the same terms we used earlier, that's 4 pounds, or the equivalent of 1 brick, a modern laptop, or $82,115 worth of gold. The smart people around the range carry around a large water bottle. Personally, I carry two 32-ounce bottles of water in my cart. Then I have two more in my cooler. I've seen guys and gals carry one-gallon water jugs like we used to do at T-Ball. Great for keeping water cold and in mass. Lots of different techniques, lots of options, it doesn't matter. Do what you want. Drink your water, drink it often. One pitfall that I can see of hydration is actually staying too hydrated and flushing out valuable minerals called electrolytes. I'm sure everyone's heard this term at one time or another, but electrolytes are really important and include good stuff like sodium and potassium. A lack of these elements could cause cramping, muscle fatigue, soreness, and so on. That's why you see a lot of sports drinks boast their inclusion of electrolytes. Believe it or not, it's not a sales pitch. I pay attention to this as well throughout the day and will add some to one of my 32-ounce bottles in my cart. Here's a few products that you can use throughout the day to help you with a loss of electrolytes. Pedialyte. Yes, the stuff you feed your kids when they're poopy or had the vomsies. Both powder form and liquid are great additives to a bottle of water for both shooting and hangovers. Don't ask. I'll add a pouch of Pedialyte powder to my bottles for a midday electrolyte boost. Again, better to stay ahead than behind of this power curve. Gatorade is a great beverage to add to your bag as well. I'll usually keep one in my backpack as an emergency bottle in case I run out of water or need an electro boost. Actually, my buddy Pat taught me a little trick. Take an empty Gatorade bottle, fill it with some drinking water, and freeze it. It serves as a great ice pack and a really cold last drink of the day without sacrificing any cooler space. Another newish electrolyte product is called Liquid IV. 
This powder additive moonlights as a hangover additive, a workout booster, and hydration multiplier, whatever that means. I've gone through a few packets of these in my days, and they're pretty decent. I usually find them in 30 packs at Costco for a fairly decent price compared to Pedialyte. Here's what I would absolutely stay away from until after the match. Caffeinated and sugared beverages. Coke, Sprite, Diet Coke, Kool-Aid, energy drinks, and sadly, coffee. Caffeine has a few negative side effects, including an increase in heart rate, increase in dehydration, and it's a diuretic, which doesn't relate to the poopy, but actually makes you urinate more frequently, which will throw away all your hard work in the hydration department. So, stay hydrated, stay ahead of the curve, and win the fight against dryness. Alright, on to the food part of the story. In one of my early episodes, maybe episode 1 or 2 if I remember, I talked briefly about my first experience at the President's 100 at Camp Perry. It was a bad experience. I wasn't used to waking up at 2.30am body clock, and I was really pumped to get to the range for a full day of shooting. Naturally, I went for a full bowl of frosted mini-wheats and two cups of coffee. I normally don't eat breakfast until 9.30 or 10 a.m., so my body was definitely not happy with that decision to eat. I thought I was gonna barf until we got all the way back to the 300-yard line. That was a really long time into the day for my stomach to settle. Offhand was a real struggle. Nerves plus food plus caffeine plus fatigue, you get the picture. From that day forward, I learned that what I eat will directly affect how I start my day, which ultimately changes how my day will finish up on the scorecard. So based on that, here's a couple thoughts for the start of your day. Firstly, and foremostly, foremostly, shooting while hungry sucks. It's another distraction to your process, and it creates physical problems such as shaking, or even worse, hanger. That's a real thing. Try sitting at a dinner table for 40 minutes after putting in an order with a waitress and watch your attitude change as meals come out of the kitchen and none of them are yours. So here's my suggestion for the beginning of the day, is eat as much as you need to without overdoing it. Stick to a conservative, normal breakfast that you usually eat that won't affect your shooting. If you're out of town and at a hotel and have to find breakfast restaurants, find something easy, like oatmeal, toast, eggs, fruit, cereal. Don't go for the triple bake of burrito with jalapenos and mango jelly topped with aioli sauce. Mm-mm. On a related note, one time I was fortunate enough to work with a retired Air Force F-16 pilot who talked about his time in Desert Storm. Simplified cliff notes for my memory here, he mentioned after he took off from Saudi Arabia, there was a flight corridor where outbound fighters would maintain a specific altitude, and on that same airway, returning fighters would be a thousand feet above you. He said he would take off, fly that narrow corridor, complete his mission, and typically that included a refuel and an extension, and then catch a ride on that return corridor. He talked about his longest missions exceeding 8 to 10 hours in that single-seat fighter. The part that stuck with me, though, was that on his fly days, his only meal before going into that airplane for that long was plain white rice, crackers, and sun-kissed tuna in water, unflavored. Considering how much he flew on his tour of duty, that man must have eaten some serious tuna. His strategy was that it was so important for him to maintain focus throughout the day in the airplane that he didn't want his stomach even coming close to being on his mind when he was flying that corridor, outbound and inbound. I think that in a not-so-life-threatening and prestigious way that the start of our match relates to what he was kind of talking about. If you start eating stuff that your body isn't used to, it's not going to go over well. 
Most of us are also at an age that we know what foods will not affect us and which foods certainly will. So in my eyes, the night before a match is actually a pretty big deal. I'm not going to get too detailed here, but we all know ourselves. Hindrances to a happy morning are going to be from four major aggressors the night before. And if you forget which ones I'm talking about, think of a good first date. Hot and heavy, late and boozy. Any meal that's hot or heavy is going to stick with you the next day, whether you like it or not. If it's a big match day or you're traveling a few hours to sign in, keep it tame the night before. Don't go for that triple habanero double burrito mix from the place next door. It ain't gonna work. I think we all know that, but we can't resist temptation sometimes. The two other offenders are late and boozy. Those are even worse. Late meals, say past 8 or 9 or 10 p.m., tend to stick with us a little longer the next day, causing distractions on the firing line. You know what I mean. Ever been in block time and slow prone and have to <clears throat> step out for a few minutes? Yep, been there before. Had to tell my scorekeeper to keep the line hot for five minutes. Anyway, you get it. Boozy is just a bad deal. Inviting your party friends from Mexico, Ireland, Scotland, Golden, Colorado, or maybe Milwaukee, Wisconsin, tend to lead to not only digestive issues in the morning, but also unwanted effects of piercing, hangovers, fatigue, irritability, and nausea. Unfortunately, just a few beverages will cause digestive issues and decrease your sleep quality, so I can't endorse it. Now, that being said, I have heard of a few people winning at the national level after having a very fun night out. I'd say that's more of an attribute to their shooting skills rather than their booze boosters. Okay, enough about the night before. How about the following morning? Well, if I have an early morning, personally, I'll stick with no breakfast, and then I'll munch on a Cliff Bar or some hard-boiled eggs about 30 minutes before match sign-in. Sometimes I don't eat until after offhand. Though I know it's probably not a good plan for most people, I know it works for me, so I do it. I recommend finding out what works for you, and damn it, have the discipline to keep it up. Throughout the day, I'll make sure that I'm not going hungry because that hanger monster starts to peek out and normally he creates an earthquake of bobbles in my shots. Stick to something on the healthier side of life and you'll be good. For me, it's either some beef jerky, some trail mix, a ham sammy, or maybe a cliff bar. Don't stay stuffed, just sated. After the match is when I'll usually go for a full refill of whatever's in my bag. So that's about the match day, but what about the offseason? Well, not much to tell here, but the important part of the offseason is not letting yourself go. Let's face it, it's September. How many of us are saying, man, this coat got smaller over the summer because of all the food I ate? Probably not many of us. How many of us say that similar statement in the spring? Yeah, right. I'm a big advocate of practicing dry fire in the winter. Even an hour per week of offhand and practice slinging up. If you're training like you fight, then you should be eating like it's match day. We tend to get complacent when nothing's on the line. First, it's the Halloween candy, then Thanksgiving, then ah, it's just Christmas and New Year's, and then ah, it's Valentine's Day dinner. Oh, Super Bowl Sunday, baby! Uh-oh, then it's match day. Oh, crap. Hey there, fella. Did you forget that March was just around the corner? A little late to be asking the seamstress about adjusting your jacket that fit last year. Obviously, I kid here, but it's an actual conversation that happens a ton at the beginning of the spring. Maintain your current figure, whether you're an athlete or larger or smaller framed or whatever blend you are, and you'll see less changes in your coat settings, your sling settings, and your positions when you get back to the range for your first match. 
I'm not saying don't enjoy the holidays. Go nuts. I don't care. What I am saying is don't do it all the damn time. Easier said than done, but you've been officially warned. Let's take a quick break and we'll get into an overall look at my reloading process and perhaps why I do some of the time stealing tasks that I do in just a moment. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the load lounge. It's been a while and I thought it'd be useful to hammer out how I reload my brass from a very undetailed perspective. We'll look at the stuff that I get that's new, once fired, usually Lake City, and stuff that's been multiple fired by yours truly. We'll do it in reverse order so you can see how the process simplifies with better quality brass. I feel like I need to say this because you're all going to think I'm crazy with how much time I spend on my brass. You don't need to do all of this stuff to get good results. You don't. Conrad Powers, praise be his name, that's Conrad with a K, has a much more simplified reloading process and he shoots lights out. In fact, on his website, swhearing.com forward slash Conrad, he talks about his entire reloading process. It's simple, yet obviously very effective. His website, that's Sierra Whiskey hyphen hearing.com forward slash Conrad. That's Conrad with a K. There's always the argument that has both sides, the alpha and the omega, about whether you should have great ammo or spend more time at the range. Shooter number one will say that you shouldn't spend so much damn time getting perfect ammunition because it doesn't mean squat on the range if you haven't mastered the skills of marksmanship. Shooter number one, I agree. Shooter number two will counter that... How do you know if you're mastering marksmanship techniques the right way in practice if your bullets are going all over the place on target? Shooter number two, I agree. I agree with both of you loonies. You're both right. There's a balance somewhere. Now, personally, I would say that a new shooter will probably spend more time learning how to shoot on the range rather than how to reload at home. I'll say that maybe a mid-level shooter who's starting to get the hang of the sport can afford to spend some free time at home learning how to make adequate ammunition that's superior to commercially made ammunition. That's just my opinion. I say that because for me, I was an hour and a half from my closest range and I had a place to dry fire that was, well, zero hours from me. Sacrificing some time it takes to drive to the range and back and spending money on subpar ammo was beneficial when I chose to learn to reload a little more precisely. Now when I made High Master, I hadn't spent tons of money on reloading equipment. But I developed sort of a perfectionist attitude about 18 months ago and I just wanted some better ammo for no better reason than I wanted to blame all the bad shots on me, not my ammo or my equipment. Shot a bad 7 at 10 o'clock? Yeah, nice shoulder work there, JP. That's what I wanted, no ammo questions. I wanted to be confident that my ammo and loads were hammers. If the day ended poorly, it was all on me alone. So that's my disclaimer when you hear the following and think, God, this kid does way too much and it's unnecessary. Because it is. But it's a hobby. I enjoy it. It's not a chore, it's a joy slash obsession. So just bear with me here. So like I said, I'm going to make this as topical as possible without deep diving because I know we're getting a little long-winded here. I'm going to start by looking at brass that's just been fired by me at the range. After I return home, I throw my brass in the ginormous Dillon tumbler, corncob media, which already includes a few drops of Brasso. 90 minutes. 
From there, the brass is pulled out by hand and decapped on a dedicated decapping press, which is an RCBS Rebel with an RCBS decapping die. Since the brass is clean and I want to keep my pockets clean, I run the primer pockets over a Lyman Case Prep Express with a primer pocket uniformer. Some people don't like this, but I get 8 to 10 firings out of my brass before the pockets go, so I'm going to keep doing it. Also, if my observations are correct, I can tell that my pockets are changing shape over time because I will cut out some of the brass at the bottom of the pocket. Next, I'll run my cases through an amp annealer. More about why I chose to anneal in a different episode. Next stop, it's the plastic ammo block to get loaded up with some Hornady one-shot spray lube. I've tried other spray lubes and this one just works for me. I space the cases out so that only 25 fit in a plastic holder of 50, and that allows me to get good coverage with low waste. After the bodies and the inside of the necks are lubes, it's off to the resizing station. And I want to put a quick note in here, I just switched over to a Forster coax press. I haven't used it yet, so this is based on my last setup, which doesn't really change the process at all, just a note. Continuing on, I'll run it through my RCBS Rock Chucker 4 with a Redding full-length bushing die. I have three separate neck bushings for different thicknesses of brass. In reality, I actually only use two, but I have one in the middle bushing for a lot of brass that I just haven't gotten to yet. So after the full length size and neck squeeze, I run each piece of brass through a mandrel die for uniform expansion. For this, I use a Century 21 mandrel die with Century 21 mandrels. That's hard to say. I use a 221 mandrel for my 223 rounds. I haven't done a lot of testing with neck tension, but the price of these mandrels is high enough for me to just say it's good enough, and I think the bullet diameter minus three thousandths is a general rule for mandrel sizes, to each their own on this. After the mandrel, it's off to the tumbler. Same media, same tumbler, two hours, thirty minutes. Then I'll retrieve the brass and I'll use a tiny push pin to clear out my flash holes of the corn cob. I'll give it a quick run through a Giro trimmer, and then segregate it by firings by coloring the case head with a different color sharpie. For the loading process, I'll pop a primer in using an RCBS hand tool, load my powder with a Harrell's throw and an Auto Trickler V3 trickler, and seat a projectile down the neck with a Redding seating die in the same Rock Chugger 4 used as sizing. That's it. Bing, bang, boom, we're done. Really, there's only some small changes that I'll do if the brass that I've acquired is once fired. After an initial cleaning in the tumbler, I'll hit it in the annealer and decap it all. After this, I'll run it through a Dillon Super Swager to eliminate any crimp if one existed. I've done a few different methods for getting rid of the crimp, but honestly, nothing is faster and more reliable than that Dillon Super Swage. It's super fast and it gets rid of the crimp with minimal effort. Some other products I've tried include the RCBS Swage Remover from the RCBS Press, as well as a cutter-style crimp that removes it on the Lyman Case Prep Express. The Case Prep is good if you're just doing a few, but it takes some dexterity, and plowing through a few thousand rounds of these is really rough. Hello, cramps. The RCBS button style for the Rock Chucker felt awfully aggressive on the press and my bench. I didn't like how much force it took to remove the button from the case head, so I scrapped that at a gun show. Dylan was the clear winner. After that, the only difference is that I'll ring the flash holes. Again, it sounds excessive. I know, I know, and I haven't put unreamed brass against reamed brass in a test, but I just can't leave that burr in the flash hole and sleep soundly at night. It's like having a half-mode backyard. You're the only one who might be able to see it, but it still bothers you, so I take care of it. I chuck a reading flash hole deburring tool into my drill and just start plugging away. 
It doesn't take long and I don't remove that much. Besides that, the process is pretty much the same as my fired brass from the range from there on out. With the new brass, I like to keep it simple with the exception of the fact that I keep my new brass for the 600 yard line. Considering I haven't gone through a second firing of my new brass yet, I'm not sure quite what I'll do with the second firings and so on, but I'll probably just shoot it at 600 again. I'm not sure there's a noticeable difference in on-target performance, but I could be wrong. I don't know. After that, maybe I'll throw it in the short-range buckets for firings 3 and on. My new brass has been almost exclusively Starline 5.56 and Starline 2.2.3 brass, with the exception of some new Lapua that I just picked up. Because it's new, I do a few things with the Starline brass. I'll typically run it through a mandrel to iron out any dents that are in the brass, which are actually a plenty if you haven't looked at them. I'll ream the flash holes and then segregate the brass by tenth of a grain weight. It's a bit much, but I don't care. I have the time. After weight sorting, I'll give it a light chamfer on the inside of the neck, and then I'll start the season with the lightest brass and work my way up through the end of the season. When I resize this brass, I'm just grouping it in half grain weights rather than a tenth of a grain just to keep everything kind of simple. So as far as my reloading goes, that's it in a nutshell. It's a lot, but I enjoy it just as much as I do shooting it. Honestly, I think we could all get away with just an RCBS full-length resizing and decapping die and a bullet seeder, but honestly, what's the fun in that? So from here, I hope to hear some good-hearted joking about my processes. I really do. I'll take a joke at my expense any day. Just ignore that insecure crying from my car in the parking lot. And now just a quick word from our sponsors. From the same guys that brought you Sausage Sweetener, it's a new way to season your venison. Introducing Raymond Porter's Double Lot Buck Stuff. Sick of doing the same old, same old all the time? Us too. Try Buck Stuff. Tired of boring your buddies all week at the secluded hunting lodge? Spice it up with Buck Stuff. When your wife is out of Christmas ideas, tell her you just want to try Buck Stuff. Of course, we're all interested in trying something new with our meat, so why not try Buck Stuff? Available at your local outdoor grocer or online vendors at your fingertips. Buck Stuff. It's really great. Alright guys and gals, that about wraps it up for the day. I had a mental machine lined up for this round, but it'll have to wait because, I mean, we get it. I'm a little windbaggy today. In the near future, we're bringing up a topic that a friend brought up with me a few months ago that I couldn't deny needed to be discussed. The segment's going to be called The New Shooter. Overall, it's a look at how we can contribute to the growth of our sport effectively. I'm excited to get my friend Jerry's take on some key aspects of building the sport back up, and hopefully we can generate some discussion at the local levels to see how we can all do our part. If you have any comments or suggestions to add, please let me know. I can be reached at jp at hphpodcast.com. That's HPH for High Power Hangout. Remember to make every single shot count. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>